0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so thankful that you're tuning in today. Today I'm joined by Brian Cardin who is a physical therapist, pedorthist, and he has served as a very helpful set of eyes and insight for me myself as I've worked with athletes uh, over the past year or so. so. I'm really thankful for his time and today we're really diving into the foot and the ankle. We're talking a lot about structure and function and exercise and so many different physical therapy considerations at the foot and ankle complex in general. So this is a great episode and I know you're going to love it. And if you want to find out more about Brian, be sure to check out the links we have below. Uh, his company is called Cardin and Miller Physical Therapy in Central PA and they're doing amazing things. Enjoy the episode. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you again. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. So for people who maybe they haven't heard of you or Cardin and Miller Physical Therapy or all the other amazing things that you do, would you mind kind of refreshing them a little bit about who you are and what you do in your
1: abundance of free time? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've been a, a PT for over 25 years now. I'm an owner and a private practice here in South Central Pennsylvania. We actually recently partnered with uh, a couple of other uh, owners to create a larger group. We're now part of a group called Access Physical Therapy. So we service Pennsylvania, Connecticut, North Carolina, and New York. So our resources have got a chance to, to expand a little bit. Um, outpatient ortho is my thing, and and I've been specifically uh, experienced in what we call pedorthics, so we'll, we'll be talking a lot about that today, but in addition to my PT background, I've I've had a career in managing complicated foot and ankle issues ranging from the complicated diabetic foot to the high-functioning complex athlete and just about everything in between, and, and what role does equipment have, and how do we combine that into our knowledge as a physical therapist and biomechanist and, and use that as a tool in our, our toolbox for treatment.
0: Yeah, and you've been a huge help to even myself in managing some of those cases in the past. I remember we worked together on one or two just recently, um, you know, discussing different orthotic considerations, different leukotaping considerations, even exercise considerations. And it was super helpful and kind of being able to look at everything from the foot and ankle all the way up to the hip and core for an athlete Gave us phenomenal outcomes. I mean, uh, in some of these specific cases, we resolved years of pain in a matter of maybe half a dozen visits, because we were able to look at everything and correct everything. So there's certainly so much value in what you just spoke on. And I think that's a huge part of why we're here today is You know, I feel like a lot of practitioners don't fully understand the foot and ankle and they don't fully understand the impact it has on the rest of the kinetic chain. And I would assume that you probably see that a little bit yourself being in PT for a while and also mentoring countless students across your years.
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think at the end of the day, my takeaway from this is that physical therapists are uniquely qualified to look at people mechanically. And and it was just a natural transition for me in my work to to start from the ground up from a kinetic chain standpoint and say you know we 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 evaluate I've been doing this for a really long time right so the evaluative process has changed over the decades now but more and more I, I find trying to evaluate how people function in the real world is key and so you know that happens on our feet we're, we're made to be bipedal right very rarely are we crawling around at least not for Long periods of time, and we hope, right? We hope to be on our feet and functioning. So I'm a huge proponent of teaching people how to move correctly, looking at structural alignment, what role does structure play on movement and function, and all of those two, those things have to blend together and say, I think that if we don't, as physical therapists, at least have a broad enough knowledge of these things in our toolbox, we can potentially sell patients short. You know, we can fix problems, maybe short term, but we don't create long term resolutions. And there's only so much that we can do when we get into structural anomalies and you know even soft tissue failures, which we can talk a little bit about. Uh, and that's just the role it is. I, I never take my physical therapist hat off. Right. I'm always a physical therapist first. That's what we are, and what we do. And, uh, you know, our, our tagline in our business is we want to move better, feel better, live better. And it begins by moving better. Uh, we just got to figure out what are the tools that we can bring to the table to create the ideal movement pattern such that we don't load tissue abnormally, therefore creating better function, lower pain risk, decreased risk of injury. And ultimately, that is
0: going to vary based on the patient and how they present, right? You know, you're oh, not going to treat someone who oversupinates the same way as you treat someone who's an overpronator. Uh, so it speaks to the importance of a very individualized assessment and evaluation. So from your standpoint, how has your Evaluation process, I'll say, evolved over time from looking at things from gait analysis to balance to. I know you have all kinds of bells and whistles and tech in your <laughs> clinics as well. How does all of that kind of come together to give you a good picture of how that patient is presenting and what their limitations are?
1: It's it's a great question, Dan. And The reality is, is from a young person to where I am today, it's my my personal evaluative process has just changed from a sense of having seen thousands and thousands of clients, right? You interpret things a little bit differently after that many years than you do when you're a young clinician. But I do have the opportunity to teach and to teach this information. And the first thing I I tell providers to do is to create a system for yourself, create something that is repeatable. You're always looking at the same things for everybody, meaning I start mine in a standing position. I start all my, my evaluations in standing, and then I do a, a brief gait analysis, and then I have them sit, and then I have them go supine, and then I have them go prone. And that may sound simple, but I do it the same way every time so that I'm I'm looking at things exactly the same way every time, and I'm, I've got a, a, a knowledge base that tells me, okay, this is normal, this is not abnormal. Uh, if I see this thing that is is potentially abnormal, then what does it do when the person moves, right? Because we see normal abnormalities all the time. We see things that are deviations from normal, and sometimes we get super excited about them, and then we go to watch the person function, and we go, it's a non-issue. doesn't matter, right? I mean, we we could boil that down to even the interpretation of diagnostic tests. Now, we know today that these findings that we find on MRI and X-ray that we used to get terribly excited about 20-plus years ago, we go, eh, We see that in greater than 50% of the population, and most of them are symptom-free. So I think it's really important to create a system to have a really solid understanding of biomechanics, particularly around the foot and ankle, because what you see in open chain for the foot and ankle most times is going to create something in closed chain that creates a kinetic chain response up. And so if I can fully understand that and then link my... My, my static evaluation to dynamic movement patterns and go, oh yeah, this makes sense to me, then I can kind of help to say, is that a strength issue? Is it a joint restriction issue? Is it a structural alignment issue? Uh, th- that's a lot of stuff, but you know we have all that as the core. And then as you mentioned, as the years have gone by and technology has improved, we've got some really cool tools now that we can validate some of those findings. Like, oh, I think I saw this. Let's do, I do all that first. I I set my, my evaluation and my uh, thought process of what's going to be happening with that patient first. And then I'll look at some of the technology and say, is it correlating? Am I accurate with what I was thinking here?
0: Right, right. And ultimately, it's not just a game of matching your own eyes to what the tech shows you, but also listening to the patient as they go through it too. Oh. I think there's you know a loss of a, r- appreciation, I'll say, for the subjective report. And a lot of times, if you listen to the patient closely as they're doing stuff, I think you can probably get three quarters of what you need from that alone.
1: Um, and then was it? Rep- Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you're, you know, if you've not been in the room with with providers that are that are outside of our profession uh, that rely so heavily on diagnostics to come up with solutions, it'll make you want to bang your head on the wall to say, <laughs> did you even listen to what they said? Like, yes, yep. I see that they've got this degenerative arthritic condition, but their symptoms have nothing to do with that. You right. know, you're right. You, 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 that's That will set the groundwork to kind of hone you in on what it is you're expecting to see for sure.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as you were talking too, I can't emphasize the point enough of understanding the complex mechanics of the foot and ankle joint enough because ultimately that impacts the rest of the leg, Right. You know, if you see overpronation with excessive eversion of the calcaneus and the talus is moving into maybe too much adduction, plantar flexion, then how is that going to impact the rest of the kinetic chain, right? We're going to see internal rotation of the tibia. We're going to see changes at the femur, and it can be because of an issue at the foot. And I mean, I don't want to get lost on the biomechanics here because you could spend a whole day talking about biomechanics of the foot and ankle and the role of each individual joint, but I feel like
1: that's not emphasized enough in programs. You would hope. I mean, I, I think when it comes to programs and, and um, academia is tough, right? We, we, mm-hmm. We've got to, when it comes to these programs, they have rules they have to play by, by the accrediting agencies. They have to have certain things in their programs. So I'm, I'm careful not to throw stones at glass houses when there could always be ways to improve things. But as a provider, uh, I, I And when I get a chance to speak in front of students, I, I always encourage them that your focus should be on understanding the how and the why of something. How does the joint work? Why does that matter? And what impact is that going to have going up and down the kinetic chain? Too many times I, I'll see providers to, to focus on either protocol-driven rehabilitative processes or diagnosis-driven uh, approaches to care when I mean, I'll give you just a quick example without going down a rabbit hole. You know, if I had a nickel for every total knee arthroplasty that has come in my door over the years that has valgus feet, super flat feet with internally rotated tibia and genu valgum, and they said, you know, I had this for years and years and years. I have my knee replaced, but I still have this knee pain, right? Nobody ever took a look at how they're moving kinetically. They replaced the damaged joint but they never looked at how that lower limb was moving. And as soon as we put them into something corrective to kind of stabilize that, derotate the tibia or lift the midfoot a little bit, even just put them in a nice pair of shoes that gives them a stable base to function on. And they go, my goodness, my knee pain starts to go away. And it's, it's because, you know, if you understand how something works, you understand length tension relationships, you understand joint surface loading. And now you can build programs that, that You're not limited. You're completely unlimited on who you can intervene with because you understand how to get somebody as close to normal mechanics as possible. Exactly. And, um, you know, we were
0: talking with Danny Foley recently on the podcast about the role of the fascia at the foot and ankle in impacting the rest of the kinetic chain as well. And, you know, he was kind of talking more from a strength and conditioning background, but he was saying, look, you know, plain and simple, I work with some athletes. I work with some of these individuals and so on. And I've noticed that some of them will move their foot in such a way where they put almost all their weight on their first and second toe, and their pinky toe in some cases is is completely off the ground. Or other individuals might not want to put weight on their big toe, and instead they're bearing all their weight on the lateral aspect of the foot. And he was kind of thinking about it, and he didn't really have a great, you know, he didn't have an answer for it. It was just kind of one of those hypothetical questions of, you know, what impact is that going to have up the chain if we're putting more of our weight on half of the foot versus the other half. Um, you know, it's it's a smaller surface area. So naturally, more force in a small area is going to have an impact
1: locally and globally as a result. Sure. Yeah, I mean, in the reality of it is there's there's normal, right? There's what textbook tells us should be normal. Mm-hmm. And then there's the rest of the population, <laughs> which... Everybody, there's, there's very rarely do you evaluate somebody, even if you're using high technology and movement patterns where you go, oh my goodness, there's perfection, exactly what I expected to see based on textbook normal. So you do see deviations or, or in that. But when you you mentioned the 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 windlass mechanism or plantar fascia engagement of the foot, you know if, if you've got an incompetence of that windlass mechanism in the foot, foundationally, you're setting yourself up for potential failure. I mean, it is by definition what what moves the foot from being a loose bag of bones to becoming a lever. And if we can never restore that lever, then we cannot expect length tension relationships of muscle up the kinetic chain to be any better. And it just, you know, it it kind of aggregates. You might see that as a localized pain problem first, uh, but down the road, you know, somebody comes in and you start talking about patellofemoral problems or lateral hip issues because they've got progressive hip weakness that is just secondary to an abnormal movement pattern for years and years and years. And, you know, we, we as therapists will tend to get sucked into, Oh, the hips a problem. Let's strengthen the hip. And I'm not saying we shouldn't strengthen the hip. I told you, we never take the therapist hat off. You got to address that. But if I don't keep looking at the, why, how did that end up that way? Why did this otherwise normal, healthy individual end up with unilateral or bilateral hip abductor and external rotator weakness when they were training pretty comprehensively, perhaps. Uh, but they just their movement patterns were such that they could not fire muscle groups the way they were designed to be fired. And and uh, again, it, it sometimes it's a matter of strengthening through the kinetic chain, not always throwing equipment at it. I'm not suggesting we throw equipment at everybody. In fact, I probably talk more people out of equipment than I talk into equipment, uh, but I do have it as a tool in my toolbox.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that windlass mechanism is essential for supporting the arches of the foot. And if it's not functioning properly, that's when we start to see more of like an over pronation compensation develop. Um, And I know we've talked in the past, both on past podcasts and off podcasts about the arches and supporting the arches and just really building from the foot up because plain and simple, if you don't have good foot mechanics and you start doing some aggressive single leg balance or functional movement progressions, then you're actually feeding into a dysfunction. So in someone who has an overpronation compensation, or, you know, the flat foot, I think is the common term for it, flaps of the medial longitudinal arch, how do you Mm -hmm. go about addressing that maybe with equipment, without equipment, can exercise alone rebuild a fallen arch, so to speak?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that <clears throat> that low-lying arches by themselves are not a pathology, right? Okay. That that's probably the first question I get is, you know, are flat feet a problem? Well, there are. There's no. There is no objective measure that says, okay, this is a normal arch, this is an abnormal abnormal arch. Uh, when I look at the height of the medial longitudinal arch, I'm always correlating that to the position of the forefoot and the position of the rear foot. So if we see somebody who has a, a true plano valgus foot deformity, meaning the the medial longitudinal arch is dropped, the forefoot has AB or abducted and the rear foot is an eversion, I clearly have an abnormal alignment issue. So my first thing is to, with that type of person, I'm going to, I'm going to check on mobility. I wanna see, does the foot have the ability to, to be put into a position that is normal? Because some of these folks, if they're in that for so long, you know they may have developed some capsular restrictions that that we can't even get there. If that's the case, and now we're probably not talking athletes in this case. We're probably talking older folks who have been in that position for years. You know, from a therapeutic standpoint, first thing I'm going to do is see if I can restore that mobility. It's going to be joint mobilization. It's going to be range of motion. It's going to be selective strengthening to supplement what I've done. Uh, in those people, the likelihood—let's just throw a random number out there. You know, they're over fifty years old. They've had this problem for years, and you mentioned earlier, their subjective report is, my feet have been this way since I was a kid, right? Because I get that all the time. I've had this foot position since I was a kid. It never bothered me then, but now that I'm 50, I have these problems, right? What they're experiencing is the aggregate result of hanging on tissue over time. The likelihood of me mobilizing and then strengthening the tibialis posterior adequately enough to restore normal shape is probably pretty low. You know, that person from the very get-go, I'm I'm probably leaning towards what am I going to be able to do to support the midfoot and arch, bring that rear foot a little closer to neutral. And uh, depending on the level of deformity, I could be talking about something like a custom orthotic. I could be looking at something if it's a, if it's a low-lying deformity and a healthy person, not majorly overweight, they've got good good function, they can move well. Uh, you know, we could be just looking at an off-the-shelf product. I'm almost always coupling that with footwear, proper footwear, because it, you know, having a world-class orthotic with footwear that doesn't match it is, is a terrible idea. <laughs> you just got to have your footwear ironed out first. Um, so that's that's kind of one end of the spectrum. You know, the other end is that that person who maybe has a bit of a low-lying arch, uh, the windlass mechanism doesn't seem to be firing quite great. You know, they're not engaging into that first toe when they walk, but they're otherwise healthy. Um, Most of the time when I look at that person, I'm looking at what's the posterior column look like? Like how short is the Achilles tendon? Because a lot of times what we see is they've got adaptive shortening there and they end up getting kind of reciprocal inhibition. So Some of the other muscle groups are inhibited because of the length tension relationships that they don't longer have. So I want to increase dorsiflexion of that foot and then I'll really start to work on motor relearning. So we'll strengthen that tibialis, we'll strengthen those foot intrinsics we'll put the foot in the position we I ideally want it in, and we'll have them work on holding that position while they do functional movements and tasks. We'll see if we start to see carryover. And if we see carryover and they improve their function, I don't want to throw them into an orthotic that's unnecessary. I want to try to, to get them functional. If they're an athlete and they're high-functioning and they're totally jonesing to get back to activity quickly, I might still choose to use an orthotic to expedite that process, but teach them how to incorporate uh, intrinsic foot strengthening, proprioception, and balance so that they can gain that strength over time. Uh, and, and I just want to reference something you said earlier. You know, as providers, as a physical therapist, if we ever walked into a room and watched somebody doing shoulder external rotation with a huge kyphosis and a forward head and rounded shoulders, we would go, well, that's a terrible technique. We're probably not even loading their cuffs the way we're supposed to. Yet I've watched hundreds and hundreds of clients doing foot and ankle exercises in either grossly over supinated over pronated positions or a lack of dorsiflexion and it makes my head want to explode because you're right we, we load them up before they move correctly uh, we we've got to pull that back we got to say no let's move correctly before we load it up and that doesn't change whether we are doing deadlifts or we're doing foot intrinsic strengthening it should always be the same right right and you
0: know, I know that a lot of those things are not necessarily the Instagram worthy sexy exercises that you see <laughs> all the time, right? Like, you know, I think that 400 pound squats and physical therapy get more clicks than, you know, towel curls. But sometimes it's the necessary evil of this is what's going to help us here. And it ultimately comes back to knowing what your goal is in PT, because If your goal is to function as a strength coach, sure, ignore all that and just start loading them up. But you're going to become part of the problem if you do that for long. If your goal is, hey, this person's coming to me because of pain or dysfunction or they're feeling some kind of symptom. And I want to help them with that. And I want to get them back to doing what they want to do, whether that be sport or activities at home or whatever, then you have to keep their goal in mind. You know, your goal is not to make them the best at exercising. Your goal is to get them back to what they want to do. And I can't echo your point enough about, again, making sure that everything is mechanically sound before you move into it. I remember when I was learning from you back in school, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this was like two, <laughs> three years ago, Brian, um, Probably. you made a point about the importance of getting subtalar neutral before you assess dorsiflexion. And it completely changed things for me because I didn't quite think about it at the time. I was looking at people and they were showing me great dorsiflexion, but I didn't account for the fact that, hey, this person's actually compensating by excessive sub-tailor joint motion because their talocrural joint motion is terrible. Um, right. And once right. you put them in that neutral position, you watch that number drop. And it's like, right. you know, what you could look at initially and say, oh, wow, there's no restriction here, no limitation. When you do it correctly, you actually realize, wow, we actually have a lot to work on here.
1: Yeah. The quality of what we evaluate matters, right? And I think that's as clinicians, we have to be careful of that, is that we we will tend to move through things kind of quickly uh, and, and just make assumptions like, oh, you know, to your point, dorsiflexion is really good, you know, and, and and I'll see people do that all the time. One of the reasons we see so many midfoot and forefoot problems in this society is that we have a massive issue because of what we've done culturally over the years, footwear, right? So back in the, I think it was the 20s when I would had to dust my, cut my stuff off from cobwebs here to know the right dates. But when they started actually putting boot heel on shoes, you know, prior to that, like Civil War era shoes, if you ever look at them even before that, they they were all flat in the bottom. And then they started putting these little boot heels on shoes for a lot of reasons. They look better. They held up better. But all of a sudden, we started putting people on pitch. And over the generations, we've had people on pitch for so long. And we shod or shoe our children at such a, a, an early age. And just culturally, what we do in society, we end up with, with a slight degree of plantar flexion all the time. And so we get really short Achilles tendons. And when those things get short, we're not going to not walk, right? We're going to walk. We're just going to change where we get our motion from. So we start getting that motion from our midfoot or excessive loading of the forefoot, which is one reason why we have epidemic problems with plantar fascial issues and metatarsalgia and first MTPJ problems like sesamoiditis. Um, You would be shocked. You said earlier how that's not the sexy exercise that gets the job done, man. If we could just teach people to get really good quality dorsiflexion on a regular basis, I honestly believe we would fix a number of problems. It wouldn't be instantaneous, but I think it would happen uh, pretty effectively. It is such a not sexy exercise, but teaching them to do it the right way in subtalar neutral without overloading the forefoot, you know, um, you're right. We, we could fix a lot of things by simply doing it with high quality versus just blasting through things to say we got it done.
0: And not forgetting your progressions either, right? A lot of practitioners will hit, you know, dorsiflexion range of motion all day long, but they never strengthen the anterior tib. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place for four-way ankle. I mean, we just had Dr. John Gardner on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's saying that's one of his favorite things to do with basketball players. There's a time and a place for it. But four-way ankle isn't going to get you back to running, cutting, cutting, changing directions, deceleration at a high level. You have to progress accordingly. And I think that's an area that a lot of providers or practitioners miss. And not just talking about PTs here, but even strength coaches. I can't tell you how many training programs I've looked at where, you know, they'll talk about, well, you know, this athlete has tight calves and they stretch the calves, but they never actually strengthen the anterior tip. Um, do Do you have any preferred exercises, interventions, progressions for progressing through anterior shin strengthening or dorsiflexion strengthening, I'll say?
1: Yeah, so I I tend to look at it a couple of ways. I, I do use rocker boards a good bit um, because I can get a flat surface where I can fix the foot and I can even wedge that foot and I'll, I'll make wedges or I'll just use towels to wedge feet, right? So I'll do that for stretching of the of the posterior column. A lot, of, I, I use rocker boards, and then I will move those rocker boards or remove things to have people actually going through active motion. To be able to, that's sort of my first line defense of where I'll go, is I like to get people to move as much in the functional position as possible. Not a huge fan of open chain strengthening that way. I like to do it as closed chain as possible when I can. So I'll do, uh, you know, I'll t- turn that rocker board sideways and I'll do inversion on a rocker board with the person standing. takes a lot of cueing because you got to teach people how to keep their hips still and actually make the movement happen from their ankle. And, uh, but it's, it's really good for biofeedback. I'll put them in front of mirrors so they can see how it's happening and what's working. And it's pretty funny because you'll hear people go, Oh my goodness, that's making my leg burn. Right? Like <laughs> I didn't even know I had muscles there because they just don't move that way very often. So I do like those. I like that a lot. Um, I'm also a big fan of just kind of recruiting those muscle groups in groups. So after we mobilize or stretch posterior columns and facilitate movement, and I'm not saying I don't use T-band stuff for open chain. I do. Um, I, I will typically begin to do, break down the gait pattern. We do a thing called back knee flexion. we we'll are really be doing one single step and we teach people to time how the tibia needs to move over top of the fixed foot before the heel begins to leave the ground. Because when we're short, the heel leaves the ground early when the calf is short. But I really am a big fan of those gait timing techniques. We'll do that. We'll break it down into single stages. And then we'll progress it over time where, you know, we'll have people doing single leg stuff, but we'll have T-band pulling him in one direction or the other where they have to kind of stabilize in a neutral position, trying to keep that tripod of the foot keeping the foot in subtalar neutral and get that whole lower quadrant firing from there. So, you know, there's no end of, at, at the end of the day, you've seen it, you've seen the ridiculous exercises that some therapists come up with, right? I th- I think out of boredom because we we can only teach so many exercises, so many ways, we start doing crazy things. But that's what makes our job fun. You really do become unlimited once you're moving, right? Man, be creative. Find ways to load that up, but, but always focus on I'm not going to keep loading as when the person begins to lose technique. When they begin to lose technique, you got to back that loading off because we're also not dealing with, you know, super high capacity muscle groups from a power standpoint. But these are very much technical muscle groups that work on stability and, and, and localized stabilization. So I'm super, super concentrated on uh, quality of movement and, and maintaining form at all times.
0: Yeah, exactly. And especially if you're working with an athletic population, if they're in season when they're coming to you, then they're likely overtrained and overclocked to begin with. So, yeah. adding a ton of load on them is not just going to hinder your progress for what they're coming to you with, but you could actually contribute to dysfunction elsewhere by pushing too heavy too quickly. And, you know, I also want to mention too earlier, you mentioned the role of footwear and just kind of the state of footwear in our country right now. And you also touched a little bit on the role of orthotics and that sort of thing. And you mentioned that the orthotic has to match the shoe, but I'm assuming that most PTs don't have a facility quite like yours where you have a running store right next door. So how would you go about navigating the kind of process of matching a orthotic, whether it be an over-the-counter or a custom one to the right footwear and I'll take it a step further here and say, you know, wh- how do people know what the right shoe is for them? Is it strictly a feel thing? Is it a certain objective thing that they have to look for? What
1: is what makes the shoe the right shoe for someone? Yeah, that's a, man, That that's a question that in my world I get every day, right? So the patient will <laughs> walk in and go, what's the best shoe? Everyone wants to know what the best shoe is. Yep, uh, to it's, it's that my, one
0: thing. It's the one oh, thing yeah, that's that, going to change that'll everything.
1: That'll change it for me. That'll just change it for me. Um, a couple things. One, we could do, we could do 20 podcasts on shoes. You could start a podcast on nothing but shoes, right? You could come <laughs> to the table every day and do podcasts about shoes and probably scratch the surface on what's out there. Um, there are companies that are forming left and right. We're always trying to find new technologies. But at the end of the day, it's a couple things that matter most. When it comes to, to shoes, fit is the number one, number one issue. I don't, if you have the highest quality tech in a shoe that does not fit correctly, you've wasted your money. So fit is key. So whenever I'm talking to providers, if, when I go into a community to teach any kind of orthotic applications, first thing I'll ask them is where's is your, where's the best shoe store in your region? And I will physically go to that store and just start to build a relationship with that shoe store because people in retail shoes that do this well, and yes, believe it or not, there are still shoe stores out there that you can go to and people will fit you and, and they will drive the sale, meaning they will put you in the appropriate thing for what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah, there's only so much knowledge as a PT that you're gonna retain on on equipment that's on the market at any point in time when it comes to shoes. So having a relationship with a with a quality shoe store is great. And I know there's not one in every community but even in neighboring communities or, or find somebody who you can use as a reference. That's, that's one thing that's really helpful. The second is when it, when I'm looking at a client, I'll, I always evaluate their gait in their existing footwear that will tell you something. Uh, a little trick is to pull the, the insole out of the shoe, what we call the sock liner, pull that sock liner out of the shoe and look at it, count the toes. You know, it's a little fun thing that I'll do a lot of times is I'll, I'll go, how many toes do you have? And, and first of all, oh, five, We'll look at them and we'll count four prints on there. We'll go, where'd your fifth toe go? Right? I mean, the shoe just doesn't fit. It's too small. And so, and it's a little fun thing where they kind of engage in you a little bit. Like, well, I never realized that. So fit is really key. Sock liner is a good way to look at it. Um, it used to be back in the day that we could split shoes into categories. We could do it like cushioning shoes, stability shoes, motion control shoes. Today, there are subcategories on subcategories on subcategories for all those shoes. Um, What's most important is length and width. The shoe has to be broad enough, has to be wide enough for the patient that they're doing it. Um, Generally speaking, my preference is to, to find the least controlling shoe possible, meaning put it in a shoe that's gonna fit and accommodate the foot really, really well. And then if I need to get extra control, I'll add that control using an orthotic of some sort if I'm gonna do it. That's my personal preference. Uh, the Part of the reason for that is if we go too controlling in shoes, meaning I get the shoe too stiff, too controlling, there's not a lot of option for me to back that stiffness or control away. Versus if I put the control inside the shoe, I can tweak that a little bit as I go. So that that's one thing for me. A um, little bit of a side trail to your answer, but I'll throw it out there now because anybody listening to this that has any inclination to deal with runners or athletes, um, I'm speaking largely around walking and running shoes with this conversation. You start to get into court shoes, things get a little bit more complicated, they're a little different even yet, but as, as it comes to walking and running shoes, right now, the very hot topic is pitch. How much is the shoe gonna be higher in the rear foot than it is the forefoot? Uh, you know, as, as early as five to seven years ago, it was pretty standard that men's shoes were gonna be pitched at least eight millimeters, probably up to 12 millimeters. Uh, Now, today, it's not atypical to find zero drop shoes. Right, Companies like Altra, for example, makes a great Euro toe zero drop shoe. Concept's phenomenal. But if you take an athlete or a person who's been walking in a 10 to 12 millimeter drop shoe and you say, well, boy, you really could stand to get that heel down a little bit and you convert them over in a flash, you darn well better be prepared for the fallout of how sore that calf and Achilles is going to get because of the adaptive shortening they've had over time. So. Uh, tons of components that go into footwear, but fit is is first and foremost key. And in, in finding a partner who can, you can say, I'm going to ramble for a second, but I I think this part could maybe bring it all home. Yep, go for it. As a as a provider with a patient, if you were to say, look, I think shoes are an important part of what we want to achieve, and I want to see a shoe that will achieve. And if you could just say the characteristics of a you want what to come out of the shoe, meaning. I want it to be broad enough in the toe box. you know. I want it to have a little bit of support on the medial column. I want it to have a, a, a firm or a softer heel counter, just, just characteristics of shoes. If you have that working knowledge of, of what I want to achieve in a shoe, and you can direct to a retail partner in your community with that info, they will love you. They will love you because you're giving them some guidance on what, what you're hoping for mechanically. And they'll go, oh yeah, this is on the market. That's on the market, that's on the market. So it actually helps drive them to the right product based on how the person functions versus trying to stick a name on it. You know, Go in and get a, a Brooks Beast. Well, the Beast might be a great shoe for them, but they might fit better in a 1540, which they don't even make anymore, a 990 from New Balance or something like that, which is a similar quality shoe. You don't want to pigeonhole the retailer. You want to, you want to tell the retailer, hey, this is what I'm trying to achieve. Can you please show him what's on the market? And the retailer, if they get stuck, they should pick up the phone and call you. You guys are in this boat together, right? Take the call and, and and build a relationship because not only are you gonna do a world of good for that client, but you are gonna potentially open your doors to clients that had no idea what therapists could offer because that shoe store will begin to trust you. And you'd be shocked at the number of clients that walk into shoe stores looking for resolution to the pain problems that nobody else could help them with.
0: Right, right. Because
1: again, it, it all starts with the footwear, right? <laughs> and, and um, uh, well, you know, and they're hunting man they're they're out there shopping millions and millions and millions of dollars a year spent on trying to self treat and self resolve foot pain when the problem is a mechanical underlying problem, and who's better suited to deal with mechanical underlying problems than physical therapists? you know,
0: I can't echo your point enough about making sure that your shoe matches your activity and also just understanding the difference in the shoes that you wear because You know, if you go from walking around in a a shoe with an 8 to 10 millimeter heel all day long, and then you go to the gym and you try and hit deep squats in a zero drop lifting shoe, then no wonder why you're not getting as low or no wonder why other things start to hurt because you're limiting your ankle movement from the start. And, you know, I don't necessarily think, at least personally, I don't necessarily think that all heel elevation or all heel wedging is a bad thing. But I do think you have to be aware of what it is that you're doing and the impact it's having on your body as a result, because, you know, you might be the kind of person that wants to go to the gym and squat deep, and you might just have to elevate your heels on a 10-pound plate, and you can go as low as you want. And, you know, to me, that's not necessarily an incorrect way to train. That's being aware of what your current status is. And how to adapt to it in order to prevent further compensation and pain. Right. Yeah, you know, we
1: meet people where they are, and then we work to get them where they want to be. I mean, that's that's the gist of the story right there. And and I agree wholly with you. Um, you know, if if I'm sitting in a in a room with a shoe vendor, which I I still have the opportunity to do because I do own a retail store, uh, and they'll you know the ultra rep will come in and, and speak passionately because they believe it. They speak passionately of the value of what they're trying to get everybody into they're not wrong, but they'll even cringe a little bit when I say you have to understand that some people aren't ready for that. We we might be able to get them there, but they're just not ready right now. And so we as providers have to identify when they're not ready. Uh, And and frankly, a lot of these, not a lot, but several folks will come in and they will have self-tried these things, which gets them in the pickle that they need you in the first place because they, they tried to do things they weren't ready for, right? This is not terribly unusual. We see it in healthcare all the time. So Uh, Yeah, I think it's a partnership. All of that around shoes, what I would say is a a general working knowledge of how footwear works and what could be on the market anytime is a good wealth of information for a provider to have, but then also having that relationship with a retailer or a vendor that they know they can trust to communicate back and forth, that's sort of the best relationship that you can have.
0: Yeah, completely agree with you. And ultimately, as you mentioned, you know it takes a village. It takes a lot of connect work, connections and networking to really create the best possible outcome for everyone that you work with. Because unfortunately, you can't possibly keep up to date with all the information that we have no. on your own. Um, no, it's
1: impossible. I mean, I, I'd be. It's even kind of behind the curtain for my own life. I just walked through our stock room at our retail store the other day, and. And I had to ask the store manager about four or five different pair of shoes. I mean, this stuff just changes so rapidly. And, you know, I'm a shoe geek and it's hard for me to keep up with it. So, yeah, don't feel I don't ever want providers to feel like they can't give advice because they don't know everything. You will never know everything about the shoes, but you will know exactly what you want to achieve. If you can tell people what it is you want to achieve, they can help match that to what's on the market at any point in time.
0: Yeah, no, completely agree. And, uh, you know, there's one thing that I feel like I'm bringing up in every podcast now, um, but I'll throw it at you again. Um, So in my clinic practice down here, we end up seeing a ton of post-op knees, ACLs, meniscus, that sort of thing. And they have a period of immobilization, a month, maybe six weeks in some cases with a meniscus where, you know, they're not putting a whole lot of weight, if any, on their foot. And as a result, you know, you have to eventually reteach them how to walk. Is there any common trend or common dysfunction that you've seen in patients who you see post-op, ACL reconstruction, meniscus repair, anything that really limits their ability to walk for a short period of time and then you start to reintroduce it? Is there any kind of common trend you see when you go from not moving much to all of a sudden we have to reintroduce things?
1: So one of the one of the big ones when you're going from any extended period, and I'll even call that a couple of weeks being an extended period of non weight bearing is there's a term I used it a little bit ago for an exercise we do and, and it is called back knee flexion is that people who go non weight bearing for a period of time, when they begin to weight bear, they will keep the knee in extension too early, too often, and for too long. Uh, They just don't let the knee go into flexion. And when that happens, you get two pieces. You get the knee extended for too long and you get the foot supinated. They hang out on the outer lateral border of the foot for too long. It's just, it's just, it just happens. It's just a normal thing. So one of the first things that we're constantly doing when we go from non-weight bearing to weight bearing is we just work on weight shifting. we get the weight shifted onto the limb, teach them that tripod feel. What does it feel like to have your first toe, your fifth toe and your heel all on the foot the, on the ground at the same time, center that mass, and then start to work on a slight squat weight shift where I'm getting that knee to, to bend so they can trust the limb to bend the limb through, right? And then, then I'll break it down into that little exercise. So they take one step forward and that back leg. I, I don't want that knee to come off the ground too early. I want it to come off the ground in the right time, but I want the knee to bend and to load the first toe. If I can get that movement pattern going, I typically, you know it, Then you've been working for a couple of years now, particularly these young people who are post-op with a meniscal or ACL issue, and they just want to get off their assistive device. I just want to get out of that assist. I want to get off that assistive device. Uh, hip replacements are another one. I, I refuse to let them off their assistive device until I can see a normal gait pattern because the habit that they build in that gait movement pattern will stick with them. I would rather have somebody with a total hip using a unilateral crutch or a cane for a longer period of time with a really clean gait pattern and no Trendelenburg than I would to get them off that that assisted device and feel like I got a win and then watch them hobbling over like a teeter totter as they're Trendelenburg down the road, right? So those, those are big for me is just break it up into sections. Just like you mentioned earlier, it's just progressions. It's progressions of remember what it feels like to load the limb normal. Remember what it feels like to go into a flexion position with the weight loaded on there, and then slowly begin to load that baby back up. Uh, and, and if they don't, this is a, a, a an extension of your question. But if they don't, they will develop secondary pain problems. Uh, and you know, I, I'm I'm picking on the hip for a minute. I know we're talking about feet, but the hip is the low hanging fruit one. You know, when you do this long enough, you're going to end up seeing over your career dozens and dozens and dozens of clients with hip issues, hip total hip replacements that are back in your clinic for back pain a couple of years later. And when you watch them walk, it's in large part because they're getting so much lateral trunk movement when they walk because they lack hip abductor strength because somebody let them walk with a Trendelenburg well, gait for years. They never accommodated for it. Right, so right. That's that same that same philosophy holds true when they go from non-weight-bearing to weight-bearing. Concentrate on movement pattern before you load it up.
0: Right. Ultimately, uh, we just talked about this with Eric Diagatti recently. You really have to earn the right to progress. And sure. I realized that that might mean, you know, if you're a PT and you're just trying to move people through quickly, 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 that might mean you have to slow down. That might mean that, you know, you're, six-week post-op ACL reconstruction only patient is not quite there yet compared to someone else because you're focusing on the movement quality as opposed to loading them early. And don't get me wrong, loading some of these post-op patients is essential and important. And in some cases, PTs don't do it enough, but be smart about your loading in the sense that you want to load them in a way that doesn't feed uh, movement dysfunction or contribute to a movement impairment.
1: Right, you know. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's the tyranny of urgency, right? We we feel like we live in a in a world in healthcare where we're like, oh, we got to get better and we got to get better faster. I'm all about expedience, but not at the cost of quality. And and if if we're checking boxes because our goal was to get off the assisted device by week three and they're not moving well, we haven't given that patient the best care we can. So that I, I'm cautious to tell people not to get sucked into that tyranny of urgency. Just focus on what the person's achieving. Obviously, you also want to see adequate progress. You can't, in our world, we also have to see progress to call it skilled care. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a fine line, but if you're doing it the way we are talking about now, you're going to see that progress. You're just going to see it in in the quality and long-term outcomes going to be better.
0: Agreed. And the last thing I'll harp on real quick here is your eval never ends on day one. Sure, you might get 45 to 60 minutes to look at the patient one-on-one, but, you know, that patient might present differently every time you see them. One day they might feel great and they might move differently. The next day they might not feel so good and they might move differently again. Um, So I've found a lot of benefit from keeping a few basic movement tests that I do on day one as like a quick screen thing. So if someone comes in and they said they're feeling really good, go back to your gait assessment or your squat assessment and just kind of see how they move through it that day, right? You know, if you're doing it right, you'll watch them walk into your clinic. So it takes 10 seconds to look up and watch how they walked in that day. And if it's a good day, maybe it's different than the other day. And if it's a bad day, maybe it's different again. And you start to see a little bit more about how their symptoms impact their function, which is ultimately something that we can't get exclusively in
1: one day. We're heading towards the end, I know, but that that first visit... You're gathering data, but really the other thing that you're doing is you're building rapport with that client, right? You're you're getting them to trust you. At the end of the day, you're selling them a bill of goods that says, I've got a wealth of knowledge that can help you achieve what it is that you need to achieve. You have to trust me and you have to be in this together as a team. That's day one. The days after that are the days that you're going to build on that with the client based on their response, and you guys will will conquer things together. So I, I think you're spot on with that stuff. And um, you know anybody who, who subscribes to the to the concept of of moving better before you load it up, there has to be a strong component of foot and ankle function in there if you're going to have a comprehensive uh, bag of tools to to tackle the problems with. Completely agree,
0: Brian. As we start to wrap up here, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or any real major take home messages from our talk
1: today? You know, I think the first thing is is just as providers, um, going to really narrow this down to a guy who who believes a foot and ankle is a huge component to things that we evaluate. Uh, back pain, uh, I'd even argue in some degree neck and shoulder issues, but certainly uh, lumbo pelvic and below. Uh, make sure you take some time to inspect people's footwear. Look at how they move with what they came in with. Uh, ask the questions of what do you wear on a regular basis, and not because it's going to be some crazy intervention that you're gonna throw at every person that comes in the door, but because it can be one little piece to the puzzle that you're missing and it can get very frustrating. So you know, I would encourage people to at least incorporate that part of it. And then the second part of it is, uh, as a PT provider in your community, find your local shoe stores, talk to them. Uh, they're they actually probably are looking for people like you. Uh, number one, they, you know, they're getting people who come in there who are, are way beyond the scope of what they can manage and you need the service that they offer. So I'd encourage you to, to think about when you're building rapport in your community, don't just think of that as other healthcare providers. Think about that as, as other business folks in your community who, who could not only be an asset to you and your clients, uh, but just to the community in general. I mean, it's just going to help you and your staff and everybody have a resource that they did not have prior. Yeah, I completely agree. And I can't echo
0: those points enough, Brian. Are people interested in reaching out to you or staying in contact with, you know, all the things you guys are doing in the physical therapy world, world and the shoe world and all the amazing things that you do, where can they find you at? Have you left the MySpace generation yet? Oh. Uh,
1: yeah. So probably the best way to find me is either through our websites, um, which is CardenMillerPT.com, uh, Then my my business associates now, we'll be expanding some of these these connections over the next year or so, but it's, accessptw.com. It's a good ways to find us. Um, My contact information is on our websites. Uh, I am on LinkedIn and and some other uh, social media that you can probably find me just by using my name. And and I'm I'm more than happy to, to connect with anybody who has any questions or considerations that they want to talk about.
0: Yeah, for sure. We'll link to all of that below in the description. So if you want to reach out to Brian and check out what they're up to, you can find more there. Brian, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for your time. All right, man. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.